Good morning. Hope you all doing well, and uh, I'm excited. We are beginning a journey going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we are going to pick up this morning uh, by beginning to walk through what is known as the Beatitudes. So if you have your Bible with you, we're in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be focusing on verse 3 and verse 3 alone uh, this morning. Uh, so last week we began this walkthrough of the Sermon on the Mount, which is located in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and it's also parts of it are located in the Gospel of Luke. Um, I know when we begin to think about sermons, uh, sometimes we can think of like a quirky joke that the pastor says that only he thinks is funny usually, or some sort of illustration or story to kind of draw everyone into the topic that is going to be at hand. But Jesus does not do this when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. He does, in fact, use illustrations and metaphors throughout these three chapters, uh, but not in what we're going to be looking at, at least for a couple of weeks and maybe months as well. Um, he, he doesn't use an object lesson for the Beatitudes. He, he's using what is called like a paradox, things that don't seem to go together and to understand what it is to live a blessed life, which we're going to be walking through this morning. That doesn't mean Jesus doesn't use object lessons and metaphors and stories. I think probably some of the more famous teachings he have we know as the parables and like the parable of the prodigal son and and things like that so he does use that but not really his focus to begin the sermon what jesus does is he sits down in authority as he ascended to this hilltop or this mountain and he waited for those who were gathered on that day to be ready to hear what he was going to be saying and teaching and he begins in what we know as the Beatitude. Now, the word Beatitudes, if you look above verse 2, you may have a subtitle uh, called the Beatitudes. Uh, just a little heads up, that is not in original uh, transcripts of the Bible. That is put in by man to kind of help us uh, find certain sections of Scripture. Same can be said of chapters and verses. Uh, so when we say chapter 5, verse 3, that's for our benefit. But when Matthew was led to write this, he did not break it down and such. And he did not give the title of beatitude. But the word beatitude is taken from a Latin word, which we translate in English as bless or blessedness. And within the beatitudes, we're given seven beatitudes with verses 10 through 12 being a wrap up of the end result if we were to live a blessed life that Jesus defines here. Now, if you read the Sermon on the Mount this last week, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount or even familiar with the Beatitudes, then I think when you get to the end uh, of the what we should expect if we were to live this life, we probably wouldn't think that's what we should expect, particularly in American Christianity. I think American Christianity has fallen to this lie that if you are to be a Christian and you are to live for Christ, then life should be easy and life should be uh, rainbows and lollipops. But when you look in Scripture, and you look in the Bible, and the Gospels, and the book of Acts, and the writings of Paul and Peter, you see that that's not what the Bible paints in the Christian life. And in fact, we're going to go through persecution. We're going to go through suffering. We're going to deal with conflict. And we're possibly going to end up dying for our faith and become a, mar a martyr, martyr uh, in this unbelieving world. But to live out the Beatitudes is how Jesus, who is God in the flesh, defines what in fact is a blessed Just stop. No, I can still hear myself. Uh, we've been having microphone issues. I apologize. Um, some of y'all, who here pronounces it blessed? So when you read blessed 
are the poor in spirit. You say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Anybody do that? Okay. So you all kind of have more of a new King James, King James background. You're kind of more Shakespearean. Uh, you may just pronounce it blessed. It really doesn't matter how you pronounce the word blessed. Or so when you think of blessed, how, how would we define blessed? Because that's where we're gonna, we've got to begin, because Jesus says this several times, blessed, blessed, blessed. Um, and so a lot of times I think the most common way we use the word blessed is when someone sneezes, right? We say, oh, bless you, or God bless you. You may know why we do that. I haven't heard that reason. I've heard the superstition reason. That it began because people believe when you sneeze, you sneezed out your soul and your spirit. And so they would say, God bless you, so your spirit would come back to you. So uh, now you know when you say, God bless you, you're falling into a very strange superstition. Um, that has gone on through the ages. We, we tend to say excuse you in our family, but sometimes God bless you comes out. But, okay, so blessed are the poor in spirit. What is blessed? Gifted, favor. These are all words that, that apply to it. Most common translation of the word blessed in Scripture is happy, fortune. Problem is, when you think of happy, what do you think about? What's that? Oh, the, the, the song, the sappy. Because I'm happy. Yeah, anyway. Uh, happy can be associated with emotion, right? There are things that make us happy and things that don't make us happy. And so we respond in such a way that we show that we're happy. But the problem with the word happy and the way we may define it in our culture today is it's not fully representing what a blessed life is. So you can be sad and still be blessed. And you can be happy and not be blessed. So Jesus isn't talking about an emotion here. You know, in the Bible, we're told we're relying upon the Spirit in order for us to find joy. Now, joy is different from happiness as well because joy is not associated with circumstances. It's associated with our attachment to the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit produces in us for fruit. Happiness, though, we can have that change throughout life. We can put it on circumstances. It can be like a roller coaster. You know, we just go up and down and left and right. You know, if you're a teacher getting ready for school, then at this moment you may not feel happy, <laughs> but you're definitely blessed if you're found in God. And to be blessed, as the Bible defines, isn't to be based upon circumstances. And so if we read through the Beatitudes, we'd see Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who others are mad at you because you represent me. That doesn't sound like happy. And so Jesus isn't trying to make us uh, be happy, but that we would have a spiritual state of joy because we're in fact blessed. The other word is most commonly used for the word blessed in Scripture is the word fortunate. And I think we can do the same thing with happy when we come to the word fortunate as well. As we can make it sound like, okay, well, if I am blessed, then that means I must be in fortune. Now, when I think of fortune in American society, I think of having a massive amount of wealth. But I'm a preacher. I'm married to a teacher. We're both blessed, but I don't see massive amounts of wealth in our life. So that must not be what blessed means. The word blessed 
literally means things shall be well. That's the blessed life, that things shall be well. And it may not sound as exciting as happy or fortunate or favor or all that things. But this is what Jesus is teaching us is that when we live the blessed life, we need to understand no matter the circumstances, no matter what we go through or experience, that things shall be well. And it may not be well in that circumstance or situation, but eventually it's going to work out, which I don't think we like at all in our society because we can pick up our little tablets and our phones, unless you're Richard Campbell, and we can download books and music and movies and we can get things instantly. We can sit in our living room today. You know, one good thing came out of COVID is you don't have to go to theater. You can just watch the movie at home that's playing in the theater if you're willing to pay a certain price. See, we want things now and that's not necessarily what the blessed life entails. It's ultimately speaking of a future coming when all things shall be well. But within the Beatitudes, there are two which bookend the the Beatitudes in verse 3 and in verse 10 that speak of a present blessing or present things being well. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the life we're called to live, though. We're called to live the blessed life, and we're going to live in a world when things are not well, because people are going to pass away, people are going to do evil acts, people are going to do things in secret and in the dark, and they're not going to do things truthfully. But the reality is we are not of this world. And so scripture reminds us time and time again that we are to live the blessed life in the midst of a world we're not actually a part of because we know in the end things shall be well. And so we're blessed in this moment and we're blessed into eternity. So the blessed life has to begin by understanding that we as God's people are not dependent upon the things of this world. And we can see this vividly. If you want to read through the Old Testament, this plays out in God's people's lives. God called them out. He redeemed them. He blessed them as his own, called them to be his people, and he would be their God. They needed to remain in God's presence by being faithful to his word. But as it played out, they began becoming more like the people around them, more like the nations, which God specifically told them, do not be like them. You are set apart. You're different. You're my covenantal people. And so what happened? When God called them out, he blessed them. But when they decided to live like the world, they found their destruction and found the opposite of being blessed, and that is to be cursed. The blessed life begins with understanding that God has called us to be different. In other words, we will never live the blessed life as defined by Scripture and by God until we live as aliens and strangers in this world. And so as we walk through these Beatitudes, prayer for all of us, including myself, is that we become transformed to understand, okay, I still got some growing to do. I still got some places to go so I can fully live out this blessed life that Jesus is defining. One thing you're going to be able to see is that to live a blessed life means you cannot live as a nominal Christian. A nominal Christian is a Christian who is by name only, which I think there's a lot of people in our 
country that are by name only Christians. They check it on the box. They claim to be a Christian because maybe they went to church one time in their life. Maybe they even still have a membership at a church somewhere. So when their obituary comes up and say, oh, they belong to such and such a church. But the Beatitudes do not allow us to be nominal. They don't allow us to be name only. J.R.W. Stott writes that the Beatitudes emphasize eight principal marks of Christian character and conduct, especially in relation to God and to men and the divine blessing which rests on those who exhibit these marks. August of Hippo wrote concerning the Beatitudes that the Beatitudes outline the attitudes of the true disciple or the true believer and the one who has accepted the demands of God's kingdom in contrast with the attitudes of the men of this world. They, the Beatitudes, presents this as the best way of life, not only in its intrinsic goodness, but in its results. And so if we want to be blessed, anybody here want to be blessed? And not just like when you sneeze, right? To live a blessed life and to be in the blessed life calls for commitment. It calls for commitment. When we come into the New Testament, a little Bible trivia, I love Bible trivia. Does anybody know who the first person, individual, in the New Testament who was defined as blessed? Mary, hey, sticker for you. I don't have a sticker, but good job. Yeah, so Mary was blessed by God. She was favored by God. Very first individual. And why was Mary blessed and favored? Because Mary answered the call to commitment to which God was calling her into. Returning to August Hippo, he says, if one loves the reward, let him not decline the labor. In other words, the blessed life calls the believer to put in the work, to put in the commitment, to put in the effort. And so we are blessed in Christ. That is our forever state of being. That is our eternal being. We are blessed because we're found in Christ, but our blessedness in this world comes through perseverance, endurance, and commitment. And as we look at just the poor in spirit, we're going to see how this plays out. So after Jesus pronounced the blessed life, he then defines what the blessed life, which would seem countercultural in his day and in our day alone. He says, blessed or blessed, however you want me to say it, you just hear it in your head however you think it should sound. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible, I do not recommend using the message as your only source of Scripture, uh, though it is an interesting paraphrase, and Eugene Peterson makes sure to make it a paraphrase, but it captures this verse as this. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Now, how many of us have been at the end of our rope and feel blessed? We feel ready to tap out, right? ready to call this day a day, ready to just crawl in our bed, in our chair, turn on the TV and just zombify our mind and not deal with reality. But the paraphrase from the message captures the reality of what Jesus is saying as being blessed, which contradicts what we might think when it comes to the blessed life. But the paraphrase doesn't even capture the full extent of what Jesus is saying just in these six words. So do you understand what Jesus begins by defining what a blessed life is? we got to first take on poor in spirit because that's where he starts. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so there's three meanings when it comes to poor in spirit. Dependence, desperation, 
and depravity. To be blessed begins by understanding to be dependent upon God. So, blessed are those who are dependent upon God. That is poor in spirit. Again, this is countercultural. So, us who have children, some of them are older and some of them are younger. What do we teach our children from a very young age because we were taught it ourselves? Do we teach them to be dependent or independent? Huh? Independent. Yeah. We got, we got plans for their old bedroom, right? They need to get on out so we can have the man cave or the workout room, right? And so from a very young age in this, in this society and what we teach our own children, we want them to be independent. Uh, Kim and I were just talking about we want a time where we can leave our kids at home so mommy and daddy can go on a date and, and not buy expensive kid food for the kids that they won't eat. We want to go to these places so we want to be able to leave them so they can be independent, that we know they won't burn the house down or kill one another in the period of time that we're gone. And so our culture teaches us as adults too. How many here have a retirement fund? Some of y'all don't want to admit it, so you don't want to claim it on your taxes. Got it. All right, so. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. She's in, so we have a retirement fund. Why? Because we want to become independent of an employer and ultimately independent of a salary. Unless we just want to do something for fun or something we tend to enjoy or something that um, makes us interested in doing. And so our entire work career is working to the place of being independent. Originally, if you actually look in history, government programs were not established to keep people dependent upon the government, but instead they were established so that people could get out of their, their state of income and move into a higher state and not be dependent upon the government anymore. But that's really not the case. Today, we define a child can be dependent upon their parents up until the age of 24. Did you know that? You can claim your children on your taxes until they're 24. Even longer if there's a financial reason for you to still claim them. You can claim them up to the age of 30. You can keep your child on your insurance program up until the age of 26. And then you only have the legal grounds then to make them get their own insurance. We work and we collect Social Security, and you can collect Social Security at the age of 62, but you can also push it off to the age of 70 if you want to require to work. Within this last year, the government passed stimulus packages, COVID relief packages, right? And I'm not against COVID relief packages. I, I, I thought it was awesome when I opened my bank account. I was like, hey, 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 all right. I mean, we bought new furniture for the house. We paid off debt. We tithed, of course. I hope you tithed on it but because that was God giving it to you. Anyway, that was a blessing, but some people relied upon that, and I think some people still are relying upon what the government is going to give them, and so they're not moving out of this place of being dependent on someone else. So they're relying upon handouts. And when we do that, what happens? When we become dependent upon things or people or the government, what it does is it keeps us from being able to be poor in spirit. Because to be poor in spirit is to be fully dependent upon God, not a government, not an employer, not a salary, not a house, not a car, but completely dependent upon God and his provision. 
If I'm going to be poor in spirit, if we are, then we have to realize we have nowhere else to turn but God because he is the giver of all things. And so even though I'm the pastor here at Harvest Hill, even though I receive a salary here from Harvest Hill, I understand that even though the check may come from the Harvest Hill account, it is actually God who provides that salary for me. My wife is a teacher here in Stratford. Many of you all know that. But we understand it was God who opened the door for her to have that job. Therefore, it is God who, in fact, gives her her salary. He is the provider. And when we allow that to change, then we begin to think that this stuff is actually mine. I earned this. I worked for this. And when that happens, there's no way we can be dependent upon God. Because we think we are dependent upon self or upon some other structure. You know, too many people are struggling financially because they see their employer or their loan provider as their means of dependence, but our dependence is to be upon God. We will never have all God gives until we have nothing without what God gives. This is what poor in spirit implies. But the blessed life also means a desperation for God. Now, when you think of desperate, what comes to mind? I think that was a cough. Was that, was that an answer? <laughs> when you think of desperate, out of options, nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn. Now, I, I tend to think, when I think of you know, poor in spirit and desperation, I think of a homeless community. And I understand when you go to Springfield, there's some people there that are not homeless and they're just putting on a show and, and all that. I get that. But there are, in fact, homeless people in Springfield who have no options and nowhere to go and they need help. They are completely desperate. For me and for us to be blessed, we have to be completely desperate for God. So it brings up a different question as I was thinking about being desperate for God. When we become desperate, when we're ready to tap out, when it's just too much on our plate and we just feel overwhelmed, where or who do we turn to? As a man, I tend to turn to anger <laughs> and frustration. I do that. Right, Ethan? If things are out of control. Because I've got, I can't figure it out. I can't go anywhere. But I've gotten to this place of desperation where I'm supposed to turn to God and rely upon God. You know, I, I've started running in the last several months, and there's times my legs are desperate for me to stop. There's times in all of our life we've been so thirsty, we're just desperate for a little drink. Some of y'all are going to start to get hungry or hangry, and you're going to be desperate for food to go into your belly. And your belly is going to start reminding you, hey, the tank's getting a little low. You know, when we were younger, when I was younger at least, and there was something I wanted, maybe not something I needed, but something I wanted, I became desperate, and so I would turn to credit. At times we can be tempted to quench the Holy Spirit in our desperation because we look for other things to fill it. When only God is supposed to be the means to fill our desperation instead of what this world lies about it can provide for us. This is to be poor in spirit. See, when we come to a place of being poor in spirit, we come to a place of brokenness. 
because we realize we have no physical, more importantly, no spiritual resources of our own to truly fill the desperation of our soul. And so we don't go looking for handouts from the world or government, but our soul is longing for the provisions of the Almighty God. We come to a place where the psalmist says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. When God is all we have and all we need, we come to the place of understanding what it is to be blessed by being poor in spirit. Finally, be poor in spirit is the blessed of poor in spirit is to realize our depravity or depravity, depravity. Depravity is a fun word because it's not a word we use too often, particularly today. It came about in Reformed theology. What it means is it speaks of the sinful nature of human beings. We all have a depravity of our soul. We have sin in us. The word, in fact, means we are wicked and corrupt to the core. And so Reformed theology began using this word to describe what it is as human beings we are and what we continue to wrestle with in our sinful nature. And if you go into the book of Romans in the New Testament, you see starting in chapter 1, verse 18, this is what Paul begins to unwrap is the depravity of man. Matter of fact, he spends 11 chapters in Romans, the first 11 chapters, just speaking about how we are unholy and we are unrighteous and we don't deserve God's grace and we don't deserve his goodness and we can't do anything to get God's grace. We can't do anything to earn it. We aren't born as a believer or as God's people. We are naturally corrupt to the core. We have a sinful nature. We know things we shouldn't do, and yet we do them. And we know the things we should do, and we don't do them. That is our depravity. That is our sinful state. And so what we try to do, and Paul lays this out, is we try to fix ourselves. Because we know something's off. Something's wrong. Something's not going the way it should be. And then we try to fix ourselves. But the problem is we know inside as a believer we can't. No matter how hard we work, we can't. And if you look out in the world, you see the depravity of man because the world knows something's wrong, something's off, something's not the way it should be. And so what do we see in our world today? What have we seen in our country in this last year? We've seen riots. We've seen discrimination. We've seen abuse. We've seen addictions rise, suicides rise. We've seen lies come out into the truth. Why? Because human beings naturally are trying to fix something they innately know is off. There's a sinful nature in us. And since human beings, including ourselves, can't fix it ourselves, what do we do? We get angrier. And we take it out on other people. And we live out even deeper sinful habits. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this is why we are poor in spirit before Christ. And as believers, we must remember that we are continually poor in spirit because apart from Christ, we can do nothing, are nothing, and have nothing. We are sinful. And if it wasn't for Christ as our Savior, we would still be in our sin. To be poor in spirit is to realize that we are empty without God. John Blanchard says that we will never crave to be filled until we are convinced we are empty. 
A.W. Tozer wrote, We need to begin to repent of our lack of holiness in the presence of the holy. Repent of our self-indulgence in the presence of the selfless Christ. Repent of our harshness in the presence of a kind and forgiving Christ. We must repent of our lukewarm attitude in the presence of a zealous Christ burning like a flame. To be where God calls us to be and being poor in spirit, we must realize that we are not fully who God has created us to be. Even if we are in Christ, we still are not fully there. We have not fully been transformed into his likeness, and we won't until we are in the full presence of Christ in his kingdom. So as believers, the Bible instructs us, even believers, we are to come before God with a repentant heart and to ask God to forgive us on a daily basis because we always fall short of his holiness. And that might seem like a depressing lifestyle. Oh, man, that sounds really blessed, right? Always repenting, always asking forgiveness. That's, that doesn't sound like blessed. The fact is, when we repent to God and we ask God for forgiveness, we find forgiveness. And what happens? It liberates us. It frees us from that sin. It, it allows us to hand it over to him. In our repentance and need of God's forgiveness, we're stating and reaffirming in our hearts that we do not have it all together. And we are nothing without God's grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness. We understand that we're nothing. We are poor in spirit compared to the vast riches of God's provision, protection, wisdom, and blessing. Being poor in spirit, we are desperately dependent on God to continue to mold and shape our depraved state. And you know what happens when we get to this place? When we are blessed in, uh, by being poor in spirit, dependent upon God, out of resources, understanding that we are sinful before a holy God. Did you see the promise? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, the Beatitudes are bookended with this promise that is present and eternal. When we come to the poor in spirit state, and we understand who we are before God. You know what we find? We find deliverance. That's the blessed life. I'm dependent upon God. Completely relying upon God. Sinful before God. And when I come before God with that understanding that I need him, without him I have nothing, God gives me deliverance. The statements of Jesus throughout the Beatitudes, they paint this paradox we have to understand that we have no spiritual resources of our own. And when we understand that, then the riches of the kingdom come in full measure. God's kingdom, for theirs is the kingdom of God, speaks of God's rule. And to receive the kingdom begins by acknowledging our spiritual poverty. Charles Spurgeon wrote, The way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. The believer in the individual who is poor in spirit is the one who has realized things mean nothing and God means everything. So we're blessed and delivered from our spiritual poverty when this becomes our constant reality. We are nothing without God. We are nothing without God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is, in fact, everything we need and what our hearts truly desire. And this world tries to trick us that it's going to be something else or something else will fill it. But God says right here, when you're poor in spirit, when you're desperate and dependent, yours is the kingdom of God, his riches and his grace. 
In the poor in, spirit state, poor in spirit state, we understand that the reign and rule of God is the only thing that will actually bring us fulfillment in life. Let's make the words of this song kind of our heart's cry. Lord, I come and I confess. Bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My own defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. We spent time in this passage over this last week, and just it's an easy verse to memorize, but two questions came to mind I believe we all need to answer as believers. Is there something in our life keeping us from being poor in spirit? Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a reliance upon something else. Maybe it's food. Are there things in my life that I'm trying to fill my soul with which are keeping me from realizing being poor in spirit? being desperate for God, seeing him as my only resource and source. We have nothing apart from God and are nothing apart from God. And nothing can fill our souls and our hearts like God can. That's to be poor in spirit. He's all I've got. So if everything else would fall apart, if everything else wouldn't go my way, I'm fine because I've got God. And he's all I need. And therefore I'm blessed. And perhaps you're here this morning and realizing how poor in spirit you are because you're not saved and you're not forgiven. The Bible says that God created all things and he created all people in his image and likeness. The problem with all people is we talked about we all have a rebellious heart. We all do things that we know we shouldn't and we hope sometimes people don't find out about that. We all have stuff we'd stuff in our closets, things we're not proud about. That's sin. That's rebellion. And sometimes we try to fix it, sometimes we try to hide it, sometimes we try to lie about it. The reality is nothing can fix our sin problem except Jesus Christ. He is the atoning sacrifice. And what that word atone means is that Jesus was our substitute. He took our place. So when we deserve the wrath of God for our sin, for our depraved state, Jesus Christ stepped in our place, held out his arms and said, God, blame me. The Bible says when we believe that, Jesus did that for us. And we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, confess that we are sinner before a holy God. The Bible says we will find eternal life and be completely forgiven, past, present, and future. And so you may be here this morning, and what you need to do to step into the blessed life is begin a relationship with God found in Jesus Christ alone. And so I'm going to invite you to come down here in a moment. Nick's going to lead us in a song. And you say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. But maybe you're here, and like me, as I've walked through this, and I, I, it convicts me, too, just studying for sermons, to realize there are some things I'm, I'm kind of feeling to keep myself becoming desperate for God and relying upon other things to, to fill my soul. And it's keeping me from the blessed life that God wants to give me. Maybe that's you, too, and using you to come and kneel before the Father. We come to this table to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us, and so we can praise his name that he has taken it all. There's nothing we've done that is hidden from his sight. And so he knows the things that we're trying to fill, which only he can. This is a time of invitation. I'm going to invite you to come if you need to accept Christ. I invite you to come and kneel before the Father. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us, taking care of us. Lord, thank you that you've called us to something different. 
You define us differently than what this world defines us as. And though we know that to be blessed isn't going to always be easy and people around us aren't going to be able to understand it. But Father, we want to tune our hearts to sing your praise. We want to look to you as our only source. To be completely reliant upon you for apart from you we have no good thing. Forgive me if I've gotten you away. Forgive me if, if, if I've said something that has not been from your spirit. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just remove that from any memory. And Lord, we would only hear your word and your voice speaking to our hearts. It's come this time of invitation, Lord. If there's someone here who knows, because the spirit is stirring, that they are not saved, they do not belong to you, pray that the spirit would just drive them down the aisle to accept you as their Lord and Savior today. Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I know, Lord, this is hard. I know we get distracted. I praise you that you already know that about us. You know everything. There's nothing hidden from you. And so we come before you to sing your praises, ask for your continual guidance and leadership in our life, that we may continue to live the blessed life, to be poor in spirit, even if the world doesn't understand it. Let this time be a time that glorifies you, that we not just be hearers of your word, but doers. And praise on the name of Jesus. Amen.